Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Trying to look at, for example, addiction and say, well, actually, this is not primarily about chemistry, either the exogenous chemistry of like the stuff, you know, it's not, it's the, the badness is not, lo- the, 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 the suffering is not located in the dimorphine, in the heroin, and the suffering is not the result even necessarily of uh, primarily of a genetic predisposition or certainly not to do with the failure of the moral fiber of this individual it's to do with their context you know you put the rat in the box on its own it presses the lever till it's completely off its head that's because it's one rat on its own in a box has no idea when it's going to get out and it's a social creature humans hey look just the same The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome occultist, psychonaut, and writer Julian Vane. Julian is a British independent scholar and author with over three decades of experience within esoteric culture, from druidry to chaos magic, from indigenous shamanism through to Freemasonry and witchcraft. Growing up in the Britain of punk and then rave culture, Julian immersed himself in the philosophy and techniques of magic. His journey into group ritual practice began within the Western esoteric tradition when he was 16. 
Since then, he has worked in ceremony with practitioners from many different lands and lineages. Julian is a co-organizer of the Psychedelic Conference Breaking Convention and a trustee of the Psychedelic Museum Project. He facilitates psychedelic ceremony, as well as providing one-to-one -one psychedelic integration sessions and support. In 2017, he published the celebrated book, Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony. Today, Julian is the author of books, essays, journals, and articles in both the academic and esoteric press. He sees his work as part of the process to help reimagine an earth-centered, non-dogmatic, open-source spirituality. He shares his practice through mentoring, workshops, online teaching, and retreats. Over the past three years, I've interviewed a lot of people for the podcast that I consider elders, and it's always a great honor and privilege to have the opportunity to dive deep with them and to share the conversations with you. But every once in a while, I get to have a conversation with someone who's more of a colleague and fellow practitioner, and it's always a fun experience for me to engage in dialogue with someone who shares a lot of the same ideas and interests. In this conversation, Julian and I chat about a range of topics, including the current state of psychedelics, the importance of ritual, mentorship, and personal practice, and the value of restoring connection to self, community, and ecology. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. If you want to continue the conversation, I invite you to join the Medicine Path Tribe on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to early release of episodes, exclusive podcast extras, yoga practice resources, and join a growing community of soul-centered artists, healers, and cultural activists. You can find out more information at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with occultist, psychonaut, and writer Julian Vane on The Medicine Path. say anything that you might later regret <laughs> <laughs> all right it's my pleasure to welcome julian vane on the podcast um julian little background before we get started uh, i've been kind of i've seen you around the psychedelic and magic scene you know i've seen some videos of yours over the years you've done a lot of presentations at different places um but recently you're on my friend jason's podcast and um I just, I really appreciated a lot of what you had to say. I appreciated that you're a fellow practitioner. So I think that gives you and I a different perspective than maybe an academic or a clinician when thinking about psychedelics and their therapeutic use. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought you're one of, uh, you know, you're a spiritual kin. You're an interesting person who's explored a lot in your life. And I just wanted to really talk to you and dig into some interesting topics. So thanks for joining me. Brian, thank you very, very much for inviting me. It's, it's really lovely to be here. And yeah, looking forward to unfolding an interesting conversation with you today. Great. Maybe you could start by letting us know where in the world are you? 
So I'm uh, speaking to you from North Devon. So if you visualize a map of the, uh, the, the British Isles, the little archipelago off of the main body of continental Europe, and you visualize that map, then you've got down in the southwest uh, corner of the island, you have Cornwall, which I guess lots of people have heard of, and then Devon is the next region up. So it's a fairly kind of rural region. I'm in a town um, of about, I don't know, 20,000 people, something of this order. Um, I'm within uh, a matter of a couple of miles walk from the coast. I live in the valley uh, with uh, an enormous river that passes through it with the great tidal range of about seven, eight metres, something like this. And uh, that's where my home has been for uh, getting on for 20 years now. Sounds great. And not dissimilar from where I live here on Vancouver Island. We've got uh, the ocean out the back door, a beautiful lake I love to swim in just down the path. Um, and mountains on the island and coastal rainforests. So we're in natural places, which is nice. Yeah, it's really important for me. I mean, I, I've lived in various cities, Bristol and Brighton and Leeds, and I spend a fair amount of time when it's not being a pandemic in London. So being able to kind of come back to my home and to be able to spend time in, uh, you know, for what a better words, like a natural environment um, is really, really kind of essential. It's one of the things that I think for me, it's a real source of um, spiritual uh, nourishment to be in those spaces. Yeah, really important, really important for, for my, my own uh, well-being, I guess. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. Um, my wife and I, we tried moving back to a bigger city a couple of years ago. We, uh, we got kind of priced out of the rental market here on the island at the time. And so we just decided, well, let's try Montreal for a while. It's uh, one of the world's great cities, I think. Definitely you know, one of the mo oldest, most interesting cities in North America. A lot of great old Catholic churches and uh, lots of arts and culture. So we moved back and we spent a couple of years there. But I realized pretty quickly on that uh, I've kind of outgrown the city. Like I love to visit the city and, and feel the creative juices and get kind of inspired that way. But really, I need to live in a more natural place um, for my spiritual and physical well-being these days. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Over the past six months, I probably interviewed two or three people from Devon. So oh. Mar Martin Shaw, who's a mythologist yep. and storyteller, um, and Tom Hirons, who's another storyteller type and uh, bookmaker. So there's some kind of psychic connection happening between Vancouver Island and the British Isle. Well, man, you know, the West is the best. So that's, I guess that's the way it rolls. <laughs> yeah, maybe all us weirdos just go west as far as we can yeah <laughs> just yeah, yeah stop there and make a life for ourselves yeah it's exactly like that whole kind of like the 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 notion or or be it one that is you know uh historically questionable of uh uh the, the celtic peoples for one of better terms kind of all ending up being pushed down into kind of cornwall wales you know that kind of region um and certainly it's uh, uh a space which um, definitely in the British Isles, and I'm sure they're in, uh, in in Canada as well. You know that it's it's rich with um, the magic of the landscape, both the magic that's been written into by um, you know our ancestors in the form of stone circles and chamber tombs and so on, um, and also just having uh, access to 
the wide vista of the ocean. I think that's really kind of helpful. It helps me put things in perspective. You know, there's the everyday stuff going on, emails to write, bills to pay, whatever. There's the ocean, just being the ocean, the way it's been for quite a considerable period of time. And yeah, just kind of, uh, I think, allows me to triangulate and locate my own difficulties within this bigger uh, vista and uh, they don't seem so great when uh, when I'm presented with uh, the sea there in front of me. Yeah, definitely puts things in perspective. The sea endures. Yeah. You know, um, she's seen it all pretty much, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested. It's not a question I usually ask, but I'm really interested to hear what you were like as a kid. Okay, so, I mean, I was, I, I was interested in magic and the occult and weird stuff from basically as long as I can remember. So um, I remember going to, uh, I grew up in a, 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 what's called a new town. So a town that was founded essentially after World War II as a place that people who had been bombed out of, particularly the East End of London and various other places could, could be rehoused. So I grew up in this um, space, which was on the one hand, very kind of suburban, lots of new buildings and so on, but also had a very old, uh, heart. So the school that I went to was founded in 1558. Although at the time, you know, when I went there, it was just like a, 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 a standard kind of um, a, a state school, you know, nothing fancy. Um, but I was always kind of really intrigued by by magic. And I suppose I, I kind of, you know, I had friends, I did stuff, hung out, whatever. But I also spent an inordinate amount of time lurking around in the library uh, where I managed to get hold of all kinds of uh, entertaining texts. I think one of the most significant ones for me was um, a book by uh, an author called John Simmons, who wrote a book called The Great Beast, which is a story, the story of uh, one of the, I think, the first biography of Alistair Crowley. Not a terribly uh, complimentary biography, but nevertheless, one that I read and I just thought, this is amazing. This is like this dude and he's like climbing mountains and you know, doing all this astonishing stuff. And he's really into magic and 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 uh, and, and drugs and all that kind of thing. Um, and then very quickly, I learned that there was a thing called interlibrary loan. So I could request a book that existed in some far flung library and eventually it would turn up with a with a, a, a note. Um, and um, so I remember requesting a thing called uh, the Key of Solomon uh, and devouring that. Um, and I spent a lot of time kind of going through anything I could lay my hands on that was to do with magic. And particularly, I was fascinated by um, kind of technique, like, OK, guys, there's all these funny words and all these strange sigils, and that's all kind of cool. But um, what do you do? Like, what do you do? And what's the, what, 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 you know, how does this stuff kind of operate? What's the what's the mechanics of this magic that I'm so fascinated by? So. I actually still have have them. Um, I, I've got a series of books which I started keeping when I was probably about like um, 13 onwards, uh, where I would go through uh, collections of folk um, spells and remedies. I would go through, you know, the, the more kind of hardcore Western esoteric tradition stuff. And I wrote down all of the uh, the techniques that I could find, all the methodology I could find, all the magic scripts I could find. I, you know, I made lists of um, uh, Hebrew letters and the gematria associated with those kinds of things. 
So I probably should have got out more and climbed more trees, I guess, on reflection. But hey, that's just what 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 happened to me. And I didn't particularly come from a, like a magical family. You know, my mum has got a, a little bit of an interest in kind of spiritualism and the esoteric in a very kind of gentle sort of a way. Both my parents really caring, lovely people, very happy for me to kind of do my stuff. Uh, Recognising it was a bit weird. I think when I when I moved my bed out of my bedroom and took to sleeping on a mattress on the floor and took up the carpet and painted a, a, a magic circle on the deck, I guess they kind of thought this is a bit weird. Luckily, it was before all the whole kind of, you know, uh, satanic abuse nonsense and so like that none, none of that stuff was problematic but I was interested from a very very kind of early age um, even from again about the age of 13 14 or so I started going to you know those kind of like magic fairs magic festival things where you've got like a bunch of people reading tarot and someone selling incense and all that kind of stuff and hanging out with these people and I would tend to gravitate to the darkened corner where there were people dressed in black burning heavy incense and uh, looking mysterious and sometimes uh, receiving uh, um, glances from some of the, uh, the the other people who were perhaps doing crystal readings, um, which suggested that they were not to be trusted. And those people I found the most fascinating. And so those are the people that I ended up hanging out with. And then when I was uh, 16, I had the opportunity with the consent of my my parents to, uh, to join, uh, to go and guest at a, a Wiccan coven. Uh, which I did. Um, and that was amazing. And then by a really weird collection of circumstances, the second time that I went down, the second or third time that I went down for a, like a, a ritual, this is to, uh, to London, um, some stuff happened, which meant that there wasn't really anyone to kind of run the ritual and to do the role of the, the, uh, the high priest. So I ended up doing it because I was the one that knew the material better than anyone else, which was like insane. The magical, the magical prodigy. Yeah, man, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like pleased now that I've kind of made it to the grand old age of 52 and I can be the sort of the, the, the graying haired dude, you know, uh, at the back, because I spent a long time as like, you know, always the youngest member of the group and, and so on. But I did get an opportunity to meet all kinds of like, you know, interesting and cool people. Um, and uh, to be involved with, I guess, the, the scene, the culture, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person you know, I really like collaborating with other people. I really like working with other people. So working in kind of magical group contexts, working as part of community, you know, I've written loads of books. But actually, if you look at most, you know, something like 50 percent of, of the books that I've written are, are co-authored. So mm. I really, really like kind of working with other people. So finding what felt like. However, imperfectly, uh, my community was was really, really valuable, particularly for this kind of, you know, little bespectacled kid from the suburbs um, who had no lineage, no story, no reason to kind of want to do this stuff other than a passionate, a really passionate interest. Yeah, I, I can relate. I mean, I come from a blue collar working class family. Um, the only books in our house were, you know, that delved into the weird were like Stephen King books. My mom was a big Stephen King fan and she would secretly feed me the books when she was done with them. So I was a really precocious reader. And like you, I haunted the library and I had to get my mom to write a note so that I could take out some adult books when I was 11 and 12. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, going through all those old, um, I think they were put out by Time Life Books, but a collection of books on the occult and all the esoteric practices. I was just completely fascinated by that stuff, but it bubbled up seemingly out of nowhere and um, gave me my first insight into this idea that we're born into this life with like what James Tillman refers to as the soul's code, that there's something in us that knows exactly what we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be. Mm. I'm wondering, um, you know, how you feel about that? Where do you see this stuff, uh, this impulse toward the esoteric? Where do you think it comes from? I don't know. It's a very interesting question. Um, you know, the short answer is I don't know. The longer answer, I guess, is that I, I feel like some of those ideas from Hillman and co um, and people like Viktor Frankl that are, for me, it's like the purpose, you know, um, this act of making meaning in the world. You know, we're, we're born and in for many of us, I guess, in sort of, you know, Euro-American kind of culture, we soon realised that um, life these days is structured in a way that there is no uh certainly from the background i had like uh, overarching religious or even political kind of ideology so we have to you know we're rather like the um the actor all alone in the words of jim morrison thrown out on the stage we've got to make this stuff up you know we've got to figure something out and so for me the act of meaning making and perhaps of soul creation soul soul uh, uh, nourishment and nurture it just happens to be, in my case, that I identify primarily as a magician or an occultist or, you know, none of these words are really perfect. Occultist is the one I go for. It's 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 fairly uh, relatively uh, neutral um, in some respects. And that's just who I am. Some people, their meaning making soul creation process expresses itself as art or as caregiving or as, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and obviously, we we can have different uh, aspects of our personality and our life that kind of comes up as we um as we go through this incarnation but very much for me it felt like i don't know i mean you know if i'm being romantic about it maybe it's a vocation maybe it's even some kind of reincarnatory stuff i have no idea i have no idea um uh i do remember kind of encountering some of the the, the first wiccan material that um that i read and uh kind of having this real sense of like a, a resonance with this, whether that was a kind of poetic resonance or whether that was um, some kind of, you know, other uh, other process that's going on, I don't know. But there was a sense in which like, this is my thing. This is my thing. You know, I, I guess it's like people who are perhaps, you know, athletes or great sports people or whatever, that they discover the thing and that may be uh, purely... Uh, a kind of circumstantial combination of things that lead to that discovery. Some people maybe only discover those things when when they're uh, in you know way advanced in their life journey. But for me, it was pretty early on. And like you, and you know, I spoke to lots of other people. I remember talking. I think it was Richard uh, Kaczynski that I was talking to, and he was exactly the same. It was like, yeah, there's, there's a there's a number of people I think who become interested in 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 the, the esoteric at, at different phases of their lives, perhaps when they've gone through. I don't know, a big relationship reconfiguration or a bereavement or some other process that asks them to, invites them to ask more searching questions about what does this all mean? But for me, that was pretty early on. It was pretty early on. And I started doing the practices as well because that was the thing that really fascinated me was that I soon realised that, you, you know, you can set dress this stuff with loads of different language depending on your cultural envelope. 
but there, there seem to be some kind of underlying processes at work. And um, so I started doing uh, yoga, um, I think from like the one es the one esoteric book my mum had, which was like one of these yoga things that was like on the TV in the 70s, you know, like learn to do yoga. Here's some pictures of people. So I kind of started working through that when I was about, yeah, maybe maybe 10, something of this order and kind of getting into that. And that's a practice that stayed with me, you know, for the next, what, like 40 years, basically. Um, and meditation practices, um, I'd find something in the book and I'd try it out as far as I was able, you know, yeah. because it's like I kind of figured that all a lot of this kind of occult stuff kind of said, well, you know, you can you can study and you can learn. Um but fundamentally, it's about like the practice. It's about like a doing. Um, and that, I guess, is one of the things that really interested me when I started kind of hearing about things like chaos magic uh, as a as a style. And although I didn't kind of get involved in, in uh, practitioners who were working in that way for quite some time, the notion that you could find these um, underlying structures or technologies and that what mattered most was applying these exploring them for yourself that kind of gnostic idea that like you know magic is not about some dude telling you a bunch of this is how it is brian this is how it works you know this is the the way the truth and the light it's like no dude fundamentally you've got to do the stuff you've got to evaluate it for yourself yes you do that within a peer group setting within a sangha within a community you've got to have that you've got to have points of triangulation and and bouncing back and people telling you no you've definitely gone too far now you need to rein this back in and do something else mm -hmm. But really, it's about the doing. And that's the thing that I found most, uh, you know, really inspiring. And that I could do it, you know, like meditation ain't no supplies necessary for the basic vanilla flavor, you know, just got to have somewhere to sit pretty much. That's it, you know. So it was very accessible as a child um, for, for, for me. Um, and I think I remember doing my first kind of big ritual. Uh, well, I know exactly what it was. I was 15. And uh, it was uh, Halloween and I did a big kind of uh, invocation to uh, Set uh, because uh, Set was like, you know, cool and dark side and amazing and like all this kind of thing and did this big ritual, nearly burnt down the house. But that's another story. Um, but, yeah, it was amazing. You, you could, I could I could do this stuff. I could practice this stuff and I could explore it. And, and that was the thing that really uh, fascinated me and fired me up. Yeah, and same for me too. I mean, I was always interested in kind of reading about the history of things. And, uh, you know, I loved kind of um, uh, the, the kind of mystical journey autobiography, where it's like part travelogue, part mystical adventure. I always loved that kind of stuff. But really early on, like you, I was really interested in practice because I wanted to experience it myself. And like you, you know, that's led me to follow a lot of different threads throughout my life. Um, yoga, shamanism, psychedelics, psychology, even I would put in there. And, you know, now that I'm in my mid 40s, I've been doing this for a while. I, I'm most interested in what is the kind of commonality between these things? Because I think at their essence, they're all getting to a similar thing. And I'm, I'm really curious if you've also found that, like, do you think that there's a common element to all these varied practices? I, th I think that there are several strands that we could pull out. I think one is the, um, 
the relationship with the the fact that we're embodied beings so um if you think of something like uh, a banishing ritual like the lesser banishing ritual the pentagram or the variants that have, that have flowed from um, that golden dawn ritual the gnostic pentagram ritual and so on fundamentally what those are about is they're about up down forward back right and left yeah so they're orientation exercises so that banishing ritual is a is a way of orientating ourselves in space you know i often say if we were starfish we'd have different banishing rituals you know we'd have like ones based on five or ten or whatever so part of it is to do with the body and um if we look at things like even psychology there's a way you know we might for example read the unconscious as um uh, the body in some sense you know our interceptive ability the fact that you and I are having this conversation we're not having to worry about respiration or peristalsis or the circulatory system or anything it's all just happening so we can think of the body as a really important kind of location for this stuff and in when we talk about the body um, and, of, and of course we have this problematic stuff in our language about like body and mind like these are two separate things which is completely crazy talk um, but when we think about the mind we think we think about this. We've got this idea of the imagination. And for me, uh, um, I like to kind of summarize at least one important element of magic as being magic is the technology of the imagination. So it's a way of skillfully deploying the imagination to create changes internally and externally. So we use our capacity to imagine things um, to make these alterations in physical body structure through 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 technique uh, connected breath holotropic breath work for example um, and we can use our skill and the knowledge that we can acquire either through personal experiment or we can learn from others uh, to skillfully alter the way things work in the inner and outer world so, for example, we know that when we're stressed, we breathe fast, we breathe high in the chest and so on. And we also know that uh, or we may know and we may be told or reminded that actually if we want to kind of chill out and relax and come down a notch to deal with whatever's going on, the best strategy is to slow and deepen our breath. So we have like a skillful means. We have a skillful technique, which, I, you know, I can tell to you, you can tell to me and I can go, oh, cool. And maybe I can remember that at the appropriate moment so I can kind of the word control is always slightly problematic here but i can mm. i can i can you can uh, affect i can affect yeah and i can intervene in what's going on and the fact that um we know that the imagination is is uh, perhaps a location in which we can uh, misconstrue things misunderstand things be fooled the same quality of the imagination is also the quality that gives it the power so if you take placebo effect as an example which is this kind of throwaway thing so important that we have to correct against it in drug trials nevertheless the fact of placebo which we could think of as simply and this is often how people kind of talk about it is like it's like fooling yourself it's like yes it is fooling yourself and by doing so in an appropriate and carefully kind of or, uh, orchestrated way you can create real material changes in the inner and outer worlds so we can use the slippery nature of the imagination. We can use um, the, the the remarkable capacity that that, that we have um, with with our cognition to uh, take that uh, malleable kind of quality and do really important, useful, and beneficial things with it. 
we take shamanism for example mm-hmm. okay so you know i lie down i'm the patient something's going on for me maybe i have a psychedelic in me maybe i don't maybe you do maybe you're the shaman shaman you're the facilitator whatever words we want to use and you pull something out of me yeah you you use the smoke you use the feathers like whatever trappings are going on and something is removed from me now it doesn't matter about the kind of the ontological reality or otherwise of the thing that is removed. The thing in the imaginal space is happening and that can lead to healing, unblocking of creative possibility, um, deeper knowledge about ourselves and our relationship with the world, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit of it, I guess. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that you put imagination at the center of that, that magic is a imaginal technique to influence or affect our internal state and possibly the external world around us. Um, that's really where I've come to as well. And a real focus of my work is helping people re-enliven their imagination. Because I think one of the biggest problems I see is that people's imaginations have kind of become atrophied in this modern culture where we're inundated with images all of the time, like, and usually images meant to sell us on something or make us feel a particular way. Like the advertisers are the modern shaman. Mm -hmm. And I can say that as someone who worked in advertising for about 10 or 12 years, it was just a misuse of my powers, you know, and it took me a while to realize that (laughs) the money was too good. Um, But I, I really see that as central to everything that I do. So in yoga, in, in kind of classical yoga, imagination is really central. Um, you talk about a banishing ritual in magic, and I immediately think about the kind of pranayama I was taught, where you're visualizing, inhaling golden light, filling your whole body, uh, permeating your cells, and then breathing out like a dark smoke. So it's like a ritual imagine, imaginative cleansing. Um, in shamanism, kind of core shamanism, what I think of as archetypal shamanism, using simply a drum to induce a trance state, we're engaging with our imagination and kind of seeing where it takes us, uh, and then revealing all this stuff from our unconscious. Um, so imagination is really, really core. And in both of those examples... Um, both the idea of doing a, that, the technique that I, I remember learning this is, uh, I think it was called light breathing, where you were sort of, you know, breathing in the light, breathing out the stuff that no longer serves you. Um, but also what you're doing is you're, you're re- as you breathe in, you're recognizing that you're, you're visualizing perhaps all the golden light or, you know, bright, clear light, whatever it is kind of flowing through you. And that is what your breath is actually doing. Like that's actually happening. Yeah. Like all of the oxygenation is passing through like all the stuff. So you're also kind of bringing an awareness to something that is actually uh, indeed the case, you know, in- indeed the case. Um, and likewise with the drum, the drum is the percussion, percussive vibration, which has all of those kind of effects on all the various kind of systems of the body. So we, so it's often about, like one of the things about magic for me is this this kind of uh, it points towards the alchemical idea of like you're working with mm-hmm. um the most rarefied and slippery of things the imagination and also the most physical material of stuff the bodies that we perceive ourselves as inhabiting you know often separate beings and we're using those two kind of levers to those two aspects essentially the same thing 
to affect those changes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally. Sometimes I just think about it as bringing the mind into engagement with reality through the imagination. Like you said, when I'm imagining the golden light, I'm also like actually experiencing the enlivening effect in my physical being, you know, Mm -hmm. as I breathe more deeply, nervous system calms down, maybe I feel tingling through my limbs. Um, I definitely get a little high from the breath sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, there's that it's the as above, so below, as within, so without in practice. And and I think that's what all of these uh, practices, techniques have in common. Um, Yeah. And that's, I guess that's also where we get to the thing with psychedelics, which is so fascinating as an, an, uh, an agent or a technique or an approach within this, because they also echo the same thing. Like when we talk, you know, we talk about, we take a psychedelic, a psychedelic and we have this kind of like all these, you know, psychological, imaginal kind of experiences. And it's a physical material with physical chemistry going into a physical body. And so it's, again, as above, so below, the lead transformed into the gold of enlightenment in an ideal world. And also the gold of enlightenment that then flows back into the body and allows us to perhaps change our behaviors in terms of, I don't know, what we, what we eat or like how we are in the world, what our relationships are like, you know, what we do with our sleep pattern, all kinds of really kind of practical, practical stuff. So yeah, as above, so below, you know, like, like Hermes thrice great says, you know, it's just, that's the way it is. It would seem to me. Yeah. And I think really you could read a statement like that a million times um, and you could hear all this stuff, but until you, that's why I'm such a big proponent of practice. Like just give it a try as a personal experiment, try a real yoga practice for a month or two, just to see for yourself if there's something to it. (laughs) <laughs> if you take, you take the example of something like um, mindfulness meditation, and you know, I know it's been critiqued, and people kind of you know talk about the problematic side of it. Well, that's just kind of boring. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's part, part of part of the challenge and the entertainment of it, the vanilla flavor. But there you go. Like you do twenty minutes of mindfulness for six weeks every day, you can see the difference in an fMRI scanner between the brain at the beginning and the brain at the end of the process. You know, you can see the difference in the relationship between the amygdala and the hippocampus and the, you know, like it's a thing. Like it, the, the, you know, the, so the internal imaginal process has these material reflections um, in the physical, uh, the physical substrate of the brain in the same way that when we have, um, you know, psychedelics, and they provide us with these new insights at the physical level of the brain. What's happening is that the default mode network is being turned down, and all these other pieces of connectivity and these uh, uh, novelties and uh, is is emerging, and these new neuronal connections exist in the the hardware, if you like, or the wetware, and that that arises into awareness as. Oh, I see it differently now. Ah, I get it. It's like I see another way of seeing through this problem, or I, I can, I can, I have a new way to sit with, you know, the trauma that perhaps I've experienced. You know, the trauma doesn't go away, but there's a new meta level that kind of comes in that allows us to deal with that in 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 a better way. Mm. And I think um, even more than the kind of neural connections that may be made is something of the transcendent experience that puts its ego in its right place, you know, and, and my, my yoga guru would always say, you got to make the heart, the boss and the mind, it's dutiful servant. And it kind of inverts the 
kind of modern Western hierarchical hierarchical structure, you know, where it puts the mind first and, you know, even um, kind of getting the term wrong when we talk about psychedelics, you know, it it was always uh, translated as manifesting the mind, but it means manifesting the soul or revealing the soul. You know, we're so mind centric that it's like all about mind and, you know, Michael Pollan's book, change your mind and it's all about the mind. Well, I think the mind changes when it realizes that it's not the uh, only occupant of this, this meat body. (laughs) And And, and maybe it's not even primary. And we certainly notice that, don't we? I mean, we certainly notice that in terms of um, when we, when we do body work or body mind work and we do yoga qigong you know any of these kind of practices um i mean i do some work for the national health service and i i do kind of sessions which are they're not billed as magic at all they're billed as well-being right and a lot of the techniques are basically the same kind of stuff one of the things i do with people at the beginning of the session is i say stand up feel how your body feels feel how your mind feels feel how you feel like the whole of you right now do a little bit of stretching now recalibrate that again how do you feel Is it any better? Is it any different? Okay, so now we do some other practices and we kind of stop, you know, as we go through this and just go, oh, how is it now? How is it now? How is it now? And I think that over the course of the next few years, we're going to see a real uh, development of interest in the way that um, the of starting to really see ourselves again away from this kind of Descartian idea of like you know there's there's the the soul and then there's the pineal gland and I don't know some magic thread that connects this stuff together who knows um we'll see a lot more emphasis on the inhabited uh inhabited body Uh, you know I really like things like uh the uh, the philo- uh, philosophy and the writing that comes out of, ph- of uh, phenomenology, which is all about that kind of embodied experience, you know, really, really important stuff. When we look at psychedelics, we, as you absolutely completely correctly say, we talk about the mind an awful lot. But I suspect over the next few years, we'll start to see, oh, that's what it does to the flora in the gut. Oh, so that's what it does to the fascia tissue. Oh, so that's how it works. And I think there's a lot of interesting work I saw some work on um, uh, uh, sort of deep analysis of the vagus nerve, for instance, this remarkable structure that, that rather like um, the serpent of wisdom in the Kabbalah, you know, seems to kind of like touch in on almost every kind of structure in the body. Yeah, and, I call it I call it the information superhighway of the body. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So like, and starting to collapse down this thing about like mind and body. So we talk about body mind or whatever, whatever language is going to emerge. That's going to be really, really crucial, really crucial, um, especially as we go through this kind of, you know, the, the, pan, the experience of the pandemic, people realizing that the, the relationship between, um, yeah, what we call mind and body, it is essentially the same thing. There is our experience of being in the world as the, as the phenomenologists would call it. And that's what we ultimately need to be talking about. And then when we, when we address these things in terms of say a therapeutic modality, um, I, again, I suspect that what we will find is we will find over the next few years, some really interesting stuff, which is just bubbling up now um, about uh, body work and psychedelics, you know? So for example, um, we know that people who have a disassociate uh, disassociation disassociative disorder we're going we're going to medicalize it we know that those people often have quite a difficult time um 
letting go enough in order for the for a psychedelic experience to unfold for them yeah, yeah. so i mean you know i've i've uh, uh know of and have seen people take actually what theoretically would be you know um uh the, the kind of doses of something like psilocybin that should stop a charging elephant and it doesn't and the mm. reason it doesn't is because the whole of their you know parasympathetic nervous system is in this kind of freeze mode so all you have to do with those people is take them give them a lower dose take them for a walk because you can't go into that mode while you're walking yeah it just doesn't work the physiology doesn't doesn't allow for that if you're lying down with the headphones on and the, the eye shades that's a different story they'll just pop out and go ain't nothing happening in here you know yeah. so what will happen is that we will start to realize more and more that not only is the you know the set setting and environment important but also our being in the environment you know what are we doing are we just lying down uh you know uh on the ground or are we interacting are we are we dancing are we walking through the forest all of that kind of stuff you know yeah completely um i don't know if you know but i taught yoga at an ayahuasca retreat center and saw how much of a difference it made for people not only in the ayahuasca ritual but also in the yoga. So in the ayahuasca ritual, because it's such a somatic experience that you cannot ignore. I mean, some people can dissociate in the ayahuasca experience and they fly off into the crystal realms or whatever. But for a lot of people, it's like, oh my God, like they understand the power of the breath and how it uh, is related to their feeling of energy in their body and, and all of that. So they'd come to the yoga sessions and I wouldn't have to do all the preamble about the mind, body and breath and energy and all that. They, I just showed them the technology and they immediately got it. It was, it was incredible. Like the best yoga teaching experience I've ever had because people were primed by the psychedelic experience they had the night before. And then it feeds back the other way as well. So what happens is that as you do that, that kind of uh, work with the, at least ostensibly it seems to be focused on the body when you go back into the um the ayahuasca experience not only can you like kind of let go into the body sensations whatever those happen to be but also the the ability to listen the, to to intercept in terms of like well what's actually going on inside of me how is you know how are these processes working out all of those um skills that we can we can gather up when we then go into the psychedelic state we can we can deploy some of those or we can we can utilize some of those things so it's exactly like the you know here i am the, the the acid's kicking in i'm starting to get quite nervous that i seem to have taken more than i expected i'm breathing higher and faster oh i know i'll just breathe slower and deeper and i'll like you know put my body into the right kind of position at you know physical attitude for this or i'll move in some particular way or whatever happens to be so yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's again, it's the as above, so below. These two things feed off each other and support each other as we go through the, the experience. Yeah, completely. And when you're talking about uh, helping people who tend to dissociate from the body, taking a lower dose than going for a walk, it, it makes me think that you know, one, I think one of the reasons why people dissociate is because the body doesn't feel like a safe place due to things that happened in their past experience, right? And yeah. so their defense is already online. Like I just escape into my head or into my imagination or whatever, past or future, whatever it is. Um, so that 
idea of befriending the body before introducing the psychedelic is quite important to me. And I think it's something that I always recommend when people come to me for consultation, you know, before they have the experience. It's like, do any kind of practice you can just to be more attuned to your body, to feel like you can trust the natural processes of the body. Body knows how to breathe. The heart is beating. All of that is always functioning and you can participate in it. You can help it out. You can support, uh, you know, self-regulation of the nervous system and all that. You can engage with that process, which is giving you life. And, and that's a big one for people. It is. It is. And I think that it's interesting because I, I mentioned briefly in passing this idea of the default mode network, you know, this this kind of state, the null state that's often called the task null state, the state where we're not doing anything. So you put someone in an fMRI scanner and you look at what's going on and you see, you know, the vision stuff is connected to other vision bits of the brain and the auditory stuff is connected to other auditory bits of the brain. And there's a couple of like major sort of crossings over sub loops of memory and association and so on. But I often think that the default mode network is probably erroneously named because I suspect that for the vast majority of human history mm -hmm. and undoubtedly very likely prehistory, we were not living in the kind of atomized, isolated, individual um, and often unfortunately fearful kind of uh, uh, spaces that many people sadly inhabit. You know, we were with a group of 150 200 individuals a small a smaller group on occasion and occasionally on in larger groups when we met for festival and we would basically be in communion with our people yeah that's how it would be so the so yes of course there were those practices like going off like you know vision questing or going off on a vigil sitting out all of those kinds of things but actually being atomized and on your own and separated that was pretty unusual. That was like not a thing that by and large one would do in many, many cultural kind of settings. Um, and so, yeah, I think that uh, this, this different set of like understandings about how, not just how we are as individuals, but how we are as like beings that exist within this kind of wider community. And it's really evident when you look at something like addiction, when you look at addiction and you realize that addiction is a consequence of suffering and suffering that generally speaking is to do with a lack of connection and the lack of connection can be for any number of reasons. You know, it can be economic, it can be because of trauma. That means that it's very, it's, it feels dangerous for people to reach out and make, make connection. It can be um, all kinds of different reasons. But when we, when we have, when we're disconnected, we suffer. And when we suffer, we try to uh, mitigate our suffering. And sometimes we, think that booze might be a good move or lots of chocolate biscuits or lots of you know candy whatever um and and we know that those those things you know can easily become highly problematic for people yeah. so trying to look at for example addiction and say well actually this is not primarily about chemistry either the exogenous chemistry of like the stuff you know it's not it's the the badness is not like the the the, the suffering is not located in the dimorphine in the heroin and the suffering is not the result even necessarily of uh, primarily of a genetic predisposition or certainly not to do with the failure of the moral fiber of this individual it's to do with their context you know you put the rat in the box on its own it presses the lever till it's completely off its head that's because it's one rat on its own in a box has no idea when it's going to get out and it's a social creature humans hey look just the same just the same yeah, I think it's a great point about the 
so-called default mode network, um, it's not default to the human being, like the natural human being, but default to the civilized, industrialized, consumerized human who often, like you said, just feels so isolated. And even if we have a family, it's called a nuclear family for a reason, because it's a small little cell that's existing mostly on its own. And, you know, why the anxiety? Why the depression? Well, because that's not actually the default mode for humans to be. We're supposed to be in the kind of soup of interconnectivity, not just with our, our tribe mates, but also with the natural world, because for most of human existence, the natural world was seen as alive. There was a relationship of reciprocity. We understood that we exist because it exists. And so there's no separation and we owe something back to it, which is why all the early gods were nature gods um, and all of that. So psychedelics can help awaken us to that. But if we then return back to this kind of society where we're all living in these tiny little cells, you know, walking around on concrete all day long, surrounded by metal and glass, only seeing ourselves reflected back to us or images from advertising, you're right back in it. And so you got to do another retreat in the jungle in a couple months. You know, you haven't really fixed the fundamental issue. And this is, this is really where the big work is because like, you know, there's plenty of people now, um, exploring the, the 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 psychedelic experience either through um, medicines or through you know other kind of techniques these these mind altering mind expanding experiences or however we want to frame them and that's cool but um you know i'm reminded of that thing that terence mckenna uh, uh said about bringing back a middle size idea you know uh, bringing back something that's an achievable thing like terence has got this great rap it's it's, it's going to be in his youtube catalog somewhere he basically says there's big ideas where you go wow everything's one whoa you can't really mm. say much about that or little ideas like isn't it amazing how your finger fits just up your nose and then a middle size idea is like oh i could do this this is like a prop it's like a, going fishing yeah you don't want to whale you don't want to you don't want a minnow you want like something you can actually eat so the next big thing is going to be like, how do we take this and how do we change our cultures and our ways of living so that economically, socially, politically, we can start to create networks and of, of um, which allow us to be in some way closer to that uh, way of living that is is built into us in our DNA. This is what we want. One of the things I think that the pandemic has done is it's increased the uh, connectivity through things like Zoom and all of that kind of stuff. And that's really helpful. That's, that's I think, a very, very useful, beneficial kind of side of this so that there's um, a sense in which we have even more awareness of the kind of global digital community that we exist in. You know, we've done this remarkable thing of, and, and it's not without its problems, of course, but spreading out this real-time network of digital uh, uh, communication throughout the world. But we also need to think about like how we do our shopping, how we go to the store, like where do we live? You know, how many people live in the same building? What's going to happen to us when we die? Who are our caregivers when we're old? All of this kind of stuff. This is where I think that the, the, there will be, I hope, um, in the next, you know, over the course of the next decades, the emergence of new ways of living. You know, when, when acid first started happening in um, 
actually all the way across the world, but especially in, say, North America, there was this great kind of like back to the land movement. Hey, guys, let's all go off and set up a farm somewhere. And that worked, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. But the point I think about it was there was a desire to transform this uh, experience, which is in some respects primarily internal, into an inhabited reality. And so the, the, the great work, the real challenge, the middle size idea is going to be like, OK, so how could we do this? And there will be, I hope, many, many different strategies to do that. And they will vary across you know, time and different communities and so on. But this is probably one of the things that we really should be focusing our attention on. We should all, I think, be thinking about like, um, yeah, just just how we can change those things a little, you know, even if it's just to the extent of one of the things that I think the pandemic did, certainly in this country, and I guess it happened elsewhere, is because lots of people were, you know, in their homes, they got to know their neighbours a little better. They got to know, like, you know, the old dude down at the corner who might need to get some, he might need to get go to the store for this person, you know, because mm-hmm. otherwise they're not going to get any food. And like, you know, most human beings, social creatures, we want to reach out, we want to help. So we can, we can build on that. And I hope that we are able to do that in a good way. Mm. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. You know, um, when I published my last book, Yoga and Plant Medicine, it was in 2019, so pre-pandemic. And uh, I was able to go on a little self-funded book tour across Canada, and I made it down to New York. And so I was meeting with groups who uh, were often organized by the local psychedelic society, which I love that kind of grassroots movement that's happening all over North America, and I think in the UK too, at least. Um, And, you know, what was kind of like, the topic of conversation was this psychedelic renaissance that was happening and a lot of excitement about the uh, therapeutic use of psychedelics and the kind of mainstreaming of it and all that. And what kind of came to me as I met with a couple of these groups was, and it was something that I talked about with everyone, but if this is indeed a renaissance, so a rebirth we have to think about what kind of culture or environment this new thing is being born into. Because if we think biologically, the culture in which an organism grows up in, we know how much it affects what it then becomes. And so if we stick with the metaphor of the psychedelic renaissance coming through the mainstreaming and therapeutic use of it, if we don't pay attention to the kind of culture that it's emerging into, we're going to end up with a kind of monster, I think, uh, or at least something that is really dysfunctional because the culture at large is dysfunctional. And I can say that, you know, the whole Western culture pretty much, which has now gone global thanks to a lot of the technology you mentioned before. <laughs> it's kind of this... Uh, Uh, monoculture that uh, is taking over the world, which is really sad. But, um, you know, so that's kind of like my warning is like, let's really pay attention to what it's emerging into. And we're already seeing now a lot of the kind of corporate players coming into it. Everyone's trying to rush to market here in Canada, in the US, because things are starting to open up uh, legally. And what I've been kind of encouraging people to do is just kind of slow down and think about how we're bringing psychedelics into the clinical environment, 
Are there things that we can learn from indigenous and even more modern neo-shamanic practitioners and traditions? Um, because the way it stands now, the, the clinical setting, the kind of mode of treatment, I think is missing quite a lot, which actually enacts or enables or um, catalyzes the healing process. Like it's actually some things I think are essential that are not in these kind of current clinical modes. So I've done some writing on this too recently, and I'm curious, you know, someone like yourself, who's also a practitioner, has experience with uh, other kinds of rituals. Is there anything that you think is missing from the kind of current uh, model for therapeutic treatment with psychedelics? I think, Okay, I mean, it's a really interesting and valuable point. I think that there's there's a, several ways to look at that. I mean, one is to do with accessibility. So one of the movements that I've been incredibly pleased to see flourishing in uh, North America has been things like the legalized nature movements um, and the movements to m ensure that as we perfectly reasonably understand that our medical professionals should have access to these medicines because they are valuable, that we also need to recognize that they are valuable not only as medicine in the clinical sense, but that they should be in some way or other accessible more broadly so that it's not only clinicians who get to have the keys to the kingdom, right? So that yeah. that's like one of the first things for me was like, okay, I'm, you know, like, uh, people such as um, uh, over here in the UK, Ben Sessa. Ben Sessa is a completely sound, amazing guy. He's a beautiful man doing really important work. And I'm really, really pleased that he is now in a position where he's done groundbreaking work on things like uh, using MDMA to uh, treat um, uh, treatment-resistant alcoholism. And I also know that MDMA, and, and he would, Ben and many others would acknowledge this, but MDMA is incredibly safe, particularly given the fact that we take it often under the worst possible circumstances. That is to say, it's a, in the criminal, criminalized culture with no control over dosage or purity or any of this kind of stuff. But that it's also a perfectly reasonable thing for people to go out and dance and rave and have a beautiful time with their friends. And that can be um, can be thought of as healing or it can be thought of as a, a, a valuable thing for us to have access to in our in in our lives you know so I wouldn't want to see this the, the psychedelics become purely seen as a medicine in the kind of the, the the western sense that that gets used I think in in fairness to um, a lot of those kind of clinicians a lot of those people who are actually kind of working with the material with uh, uh, clients or with patients a lot of those people are really aware of this, you know. I mean, remember talking to um, Professor Torsten Passy, who wrote the book um, "The Science of Microdosing Psychedelics," and talking to him about a conference that he went to in Hamburg. I think it was Hamburg or Berlin, something like this. And how the the big presentation that all the clinicians wanted to go to was essentially something along the lines of, "Doesn't matter how we fix people up if we slot them back into the matrix and it looks like it does. There's no point. There's no mm. point." So there was this big kind of discussion with all these, you know, high level kind of professionals, all these psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and so on, saying, 
there is no point fixing people up so we just put them back on the battlefield like why are we doing this we've got to have like more uh systemic ways of of, of dealing with this as a, as as a culture we have to look at things like um if we look at something like a uh, resource use and we look at about you know how much stuff have we got how much power how much money have we got we know that anyone who's ever baked a cherry cake knows that inevitably just because of mathematics some people will get more cherries in their slice than other people will get in their slice of cake that's just how things group together and in capitalism what happens is that money tends to gravitate towards more money so one of the issues here is like okay we have a model of taxation maybe there are other models out there too how do we ensure that we have a a, a what feels to as many people as possible as an equitable way of distributing resource you know we we mm. we know that this is like a, a a thing so we have to work on those the, those kind of models and it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do because it's a such a big system trying to even find routes through it that where we could make these changes uh probably means that as individuals we have to come up with you know whatever our uh our individual strategy is and that could include everything anything from like who we vote into power through to what we where we buy our food through to the kind of clothes that we we, we source for ourselves and for our families and so on so it's not it's not a question of there being like um for me one great answer i think the thing is that their psychedelic experience kind of suggests to me that multiplicity of approach is probably the way forward and we probably need to resist op um, the the uh, the creation of uh, monopolizing structures. Even if we go back to the ancient world and we look at the Temple of Eleusis that that you know existed for over a thousand years, one of the downfalls of Eleusis was that they had a monopoly on the psychedelic, as far as we can tell. Pretty much, there's 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 a couple of suggestions as to. Yeah, I, know, I think uh, uh, I think the mystery migrated. There's definitely evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, I, th I th but I think the the thing about it is that this was this was the kind of I think it's fairly certain. I'm I'm personally fairly convinced that this was a, the psychedelic heart of like the you know the ancient world. It was the primary mystery and so on. Mm. Um, but it was only one place, and I think that um, just like with the whole thing about psychedelic medicine, I would like to see clinicians being able to use this stuff, and I would like to see whether it's like a, going right the way back to Politics of Ecstasy by Timothy Leary, where he talks about a licensing model. You know, you've got a car. It's a dangerous thing. You need a license. You need to know how to use this stuff. You've got acid. It's a dangerous thing. You need a license. You need to. I mean, maybe there's a model like that out there. I don't know. But I think definitely we need to ensure that we don't get uh, a situation where um, the moksha medicine becomes the soma of Brave New World. That much is is, is evident, you know, yeah. and that's it, it, it is entirely feasible, um, particularly within the capitalist culture, which is not because of any great conspiracy, but because of an emergent property of it, it's atomized us so that it can then sell us back things that apparently are going to make us feel better when actually we're just disconnected from each other and our, our, our material world. And I felt that very keenly. I remember in 2019 when I was a, a participant on a psilocybin trial in London, like, okay, we all, the, the people who ran the session were amazing, absolutely amazing. You know, they, this was the, uh, prequel before they started working with people with treatment resistant depression which they're now doing they held the session absolutely brilliantly and, and bless them they actually kind of came to me uh, afterwards and said like is there anything you could suggest and I was like no dudes like there's there was one thing but everything else is like totally spot on as far as I could see 
And then I got on a bus in central London after I'd come down and it's like, boom, here I am. Right mm -hmm. now, that's not going to be just my experience. That would be the experience of all those other patients, many of whom. And in fact, one of the people on the trial that I was in had never taken any psychedelic ever. And yes, they made sure that there was a taxi and that their partner was coming to pick them up. And they did what they could. But nevertheless, stepping out into like, you know, uh, uh, January nighttime London with all of its noise and all of its stuff. It's like, OK, so we really need to think about this. We need to think about this because like Torsten Passy and his colleagues were saying, if we heal people and then we just plug them straight back in and they find themselves again, a rat in a box on their own, it will just have the same story again. And yeah. that's, I guess, why those those of us who, who are in a, a reasonably uh, uh, privileged and um, uh, empowered position, that's why we have to really start kind of coming up with some strategies for this. Like, um, And that's everything, how we do our architecture, how we raise our children, how we do teaching. Like I do a lot of work in kind of educational settings and the way that we group our young people by year of manufacture and then we teach them a whole bunch of stuff much of which is, you know, utterly irrelevant and pointless. Some of which is, 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 I mean, kids in the in the British Isles get to learn about like World War Two and the Nazis at least twice, if not three times, between the ages of like five and sixteen. So it's like we teach about that, but we don't teach about things like how in World War One the war ne nearly came to an end in 1914 because two thirds of the people who were on opposing sides ended up playing football and hanging out with each other. Like we don't teach that. Mm. And that's interesting. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that there needs to be also a shift in emphasis in terms of we have to be able to imagine our utopia. We have to be able to to focus our attention on the good. We have to be able to see where these positive changes may be made because it's like placebo or like the nocebo process. If we continuously tell us these messages about how we're like, we're bad and we're fallen and it's all falling apart. Yeah, man, there's stuff to be done. That for certain is sure. But we also have to have a vision, you know, and we have to try and to find these middle size ideas, which we can use to actually accomplish our vision in some sense. And I, I haven't got a straightforward and glib answer to that. You know, it's, it's a work in progress and there will be many, many, approaches and there'll be many failures but if i look at the story of um uh things like the whole earth catalog the back to the land movement in america in the kind of you know 1960s 70s and so on i can see in that people attempting to to live out however imperfectly and in however flawed a manner the vision that they had from their experiences of taking lsd and I can see with the free party scene that existed in the British Isles and even some of the outlaw parties that are happening now, you know, people wanting to gather together to dance because of what happened with the what's sometimes called the second summer of love in like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like 88, 89, something like this in the British Isles. Like we have to find these ways to kind of come together, not just in the psychedelic state, but in kind of other ways too. And it, this is happening, you know, people are looking at like conflict resolution with like, you know, using things like ayahuasca and using other psychedelics between warring tribes, let's call them, you know, and uh, this is this is really, really important and vital work. So I haven't got a simple answer to that one, um, Brian, but I think maybe that fleshes out some kind of the content about where we might go. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that um, 
you talk about the importance of the context in which we're trying to do the healing work. Um, there's a couple of basic assumptions in there, though, that, uh, you know, raise little yellow flags for me. I guess the first is that we're still stuck in this idea that the problem is in you and me and not in the world, first mm -hmm. of all. So I want to hear the mainstream uh, medical, whoever, authorities, doctors on the ground, just speaking more about that. And I know um, one of my mentors, Gabor Mate, his next book is kind of all about that. And he's got a great platform and people listen to him. So I'm hoping that that starts to expand the conversation in that area. Because like that was something that James Hillman came to toward the end of his life, too. And he was talking about that a lot. That was the main focus of his lectures in the 90s and early 2000s, I think, was the nature of our, our cities and bringing more beauty, more public space, more opportunity for communitas into the cities we live in as a really kind of easy way to begin. You know, get the get the architects and the city planners on board. You know, let's take them to the jungle. <laughs> it's, 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 it's completely right. It's completely right. And it's a very, very well made and very essential point. Like I, I, I joke to people and say, look, if you if you haven't got anxiety and depression in this part of the early 21st century, you're not paying attention. Like, of course, like, why would you not have it? Why yeah. the ice caps are melting, you know, the species, the destruction of species huge economic inequality you know like abuse all kinds of stuff going on i think it's important though to be able to kind of keep a vision of what may be possible and maybe possible for all of us and then we just do the little things we can do like i work in a gallery yeah and one round the gallery we've got like a, a uh, we've got a gardener who's paid for by the like the local community and we're getting our gardener to plant food people can just take away and plants that we're going to use to do dyeing, dyeing of tablecloths. And the tablecloths are going to be uh, put together by people from a women's refuge. And there's a whole bunch of other kind of like target groups who we, who we know have had a really hard time over the last year. We're working with those people and we're going to throw a feast. That's what we're going to do. And it's only a tiny thing. Yeah, it's only a tiny thing. But it means that there's a bunch of people um, people who've been abused, people who are homeless, people, you know, really kind of, I work with things like, um, there's a group of young carers that I work with. So kids who are looking after like their parents and even grandparents who are unwell. So we get those kids in and we do some art with them and we give them an opportunity to have, to do something really good. And we do like quality stuff as well. This isn't just like, hey, here's some paper, do a drawing. This is like, we, we get good artists to come in, we work with them, they get something they can be proud of. They get something they can go, hey, I did this. This is amazing. We did this. It's amazing. Yeah. You know? So like, that's just a little kind of micro version of what, what, what I get up to. And many people can do this and many people are doing this and continue to do this because you're right. Unless we change the environment, you know, um, the, the locus of, of the, the, um, the problem with that rat in the box is not with the rat. Yeah. It's the box. It's the box. It's yeah. And it's not the substance either. Nope. Nope. It's the box yeah. is in. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And um, when I was on that book tour talking about, you know, let's pay attention to the culture that the psychedelic renaissance is happening in and all that, where I ended up with it was kind of a call to arms is that, well, what we can do actually is acknowledge that there's something very wrong with the dominant culture. But what, that doesn't make us powerless, and we don't need to wait for massive changes to happen, but we can create microcultures. Uh, that are healthy 
And if we create enough of those, maybe they start to become more dominant, you know, like these these cells all merging together and become one bigger cell. And so that's what we can do. And we we can all do that on some level. Um, and I think about even how like how that can affect change in a re very real way. And one of the ways that we've seen this happen is I think in like the 1950s and 60s, architects and developers started to pay attention to natural flows of movement with human beings. Um, so they would like grid out the sidewalk where everyone's supposed to walk. And of course, everyone walks right across the lawn and some, you know, <laughs> observant and intelligent and humble planner said, wait a minute, maybe that's actually where we should put the sidewalk like taking the, the kind of the cow path idea, like, well, where do the cows want to go? And we'll just make that the path, right? And so that's like just a small example of how our actions on the grassroots level, sticking with the metaphor nicely, <laughs> can affect change. Like maybe if enough of us start doing it, the powers that be will start to pay attention and go, yeah, maybe it's better for us to go with the flow actually. Yeah, those the, the, that example, which I think sometimes referred to as paths of desire, which is a lovely, a lovely mm. uh, poetic phrase for exactly that. But also, I guess that the other the other thing that I take heart from is uh, again to to dive back to the the oeuvre of the the fabulous Terence McKenna, peace be upon him, um, is this idea of we're not dropping out here, we're infiltrating and taking over, and. One of the things that I see, and I see this because, you know, there are many friends of mine who work in positions of um, uh, power in academia or in policymaking um, or in like a variety of different different areas where the normalizing of a lot of these ideas and the cultural conversation about these ideas and conversations that we're having. Okay. So we're like weirdos with long hair and stuff, but there's a possibility that somebody who is not a weirdo with long hair will see this and go, Oh, they seem to have a thing going on. And those, those conversations, I think uh, they, they affect change. And it's like, if you look at something like um, uh, racism, for example, now, um, you know, we know that this is hugely problematic and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I have, um, the situation where like, I'm a white dude, right? So I don't actually experience very much of this in a direct and personal way, but I know it happens and I've seen evidence of it and so on. And I remember as a kid, like growing up in the seventies and like to, 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 um, to talk in really unpleasant ways about other people because of the amount of like um, melanin that they've got in their skin was still a thing it was, it was cool and now I mean I've, I've worked for many years in organizations local authority organizations arts and cultural organizations and and commercial organizations where there are explicit policies saying this is not on and not only should you not do this stuff but you are actively encouraged to challenge racism as an example when that happens now that may seem like a you know Maybe it's just like window dressing and it's like blah, 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 blah. But it's also a cultural change. You know, the position of, of uh, women in my culture, in my lifetime, has changed substantially. You know, um, the so these changes happen and they, they happen often on a generational basis. Like we won't see this kind of utopian ideal. And I hope very much that our children or our children's children do that. That would be amazing. Mm. But these incremental and gradual changes are out there. We should notice those as well. You know, like gratitude practice. We always notice where the pain is, 
but if we can deal with the pain more successfully if we notice where the good is as well you know and if we look at those cultural changes and we look at those people who we now know like people i grew up with people who are friends of mine now who are in these positions of authority and we look at these kind of changes it may not be perfect but the things that we see that are pushing in a direction that we think is helpful we we support you know and in whatever way whether it's through how we vote what we buy you know all of these kind of things we slowly 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 gather these things in the right kind of direction it's the only game in town it's the best we can do you know revolutions big revolutions have a habit of eating their children and if the whole biosphere kind of collapses and human beings are reduced to small bands of hunter-gatherers ranging around the planet as long as they remember that the mushrooms are there that'll be fine too <laughs> yeah yeah well as you're talking about that uh the phrase kept popping up in my head like everyday magic like all of these choices that we make every day affect change uh you know in a very small way often but then on a on a uh, on a bigger scale if there's enough of us doing that same thing like remember even when it was a big thing just to get people stop littering and now we've got people uh you know separating their garbage out into uh organics and metals and plastics and like that's all happened in my lifetime too if and I even that, that level of awareness where now it's culturally taboo to litter. Of course, people yeah. still do it, but they don't want to, they won't do it if you're looking, you know, yeah. they'll do yeah. it secretly. And if you look at something like the last pandemic that we had, so the HIV pandemic, now that made, uh, I was listening to a really interesting interview with one of the members of the um, conservative government um, who was uh, in post at the time when HIV really started to kind of happen. And it was really interesting to see how they had to deal with like talking about stuff like anal sex and condoms, which was completely like we you cannot imagine like how totally off the map that was. But circumstances forced that. And then advocacy groups, queer identified groups, gay groups, you know, medical professionals, all of this stuff led to the point where like you know, now in my country, if uh, two people of the same, you know, same identified gender want to get married, then that's that's no big deal. It's not a big thing. Like it's it's, you know, like there are still, of course, people who are, who uh, raise an eyebrow and some people even who would raise a fist. But by and large, the cultural conversation has moved on. Like if mm -hmm. I talk to my children about these kind of things, they're like, what? Really? Yeah, they can't what? believe it. And that's what I want. That's what I want. I want them to find it as completely Im almost impossible to understand except as a historical curiosity as mm -hmm. I might any number of un other unpleasant things in history that I'm aware of you know in terms of the relationship that one community has with another you know yeah. so so yeah I mean I think that there is uh there is hope we should hold fast to that we should keep our vision clear we should focus our attention on those things that are good and that we can put our energy behind we should, of course, be mindful of the, the the challenges and the difficulties, and we need to be thoughtful about that stuff. But we also need to um, really have that vision and find whatever tiny ways we have of making that vision come true. Totally. Well, circling back around to imagination, that's really why it's become so central in my work is because we need that vision. 
And without imagination, you can only have a received vision from someone else, you know, a secondhand vision. And what I want to do is kind of use the collective wisdom and get everybody uh, awakening their visionary capacity and then getting together and see just how much it lines up. Like our version of utopia that comes to us in our visionary state or in our dream, I'm going to guarantee because of where that's arising from, the collective unconscious, that if we get together and compare notes, that we're all thinking about a lot of the same things. And I've noticed in the shamanic circles that I've been doing is the remarkable amount of agreement between people on what has become important to them over the past few years. Simple things like we get together and I push the boundaries on when we could get together in person because I felt it was important and necessary and people would just come in and there'd only be 10. We're socially distanced. Everyone's in their own reclining chair because I use a, a clinic um, community acupuncture studio. So they were already set up for that. People come in and they would go, you know, I ask, well, what's your intention? You know, why did you come? What are you looking for? And they'd be like, oh, my God, it just feels so good to be in a room with other people and just to have this time together. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, connection is so essential and fundamental and it's something that we take for granted or we think we're getting through electronic means until we don't have the real life connection then we go oh my god that's actually what i needed at its best let's let's hope enchant for pray for the idea that as we come through the pandemic as we come out of that i hope And as people start to make those physical connections, if we can be doing our own kind of personal work, if we can be doing our body work, meditation, whatever it is, so that we can we can have the capacity to deal with something that is undoubtedly going to be challenging. And we can deal with all of the differences and strange similarity of the stories that we encounter. Then we can remember how being in communion with other people is really what it's all about, you know, and maybe with such a time of enforced isolation for many people that as we come back into that we can really revel and enjoy and notice really notice how important and beautiful this is you know oh man i'm so with you let's make that the focus of our prayers songs chants um yeah you know (laughs) I know you're a tarot guy too, right? So yeah. sometimes I uh, I pull a card before a conversation and usually I don't share it. But uh, the way that our conversation has gone, I can't help but to share this one with you. <laughs> so I pulled the, the sun card. Hey. Right? Do you want to talk about this card for people who can't see it? Okay, so we've got there the sun beautiful beautiful so so the classic image of two people usually two children standing maybe inside a walled garden maybe outside the wall of the city uh, with this beautiful sunshine coming down them these children playing together these people being together in the warmth and the opening of the light yeah that's the sun that's the image we're talking about right 
Yeah. Yeah. And I love in the Marseille deck too, you know, there's kind of like weird imagery, but it's almost like naively weird. Like they weren't trying like in the, um, <laughs> in the Smith Coleman deck or whatever, or like Alistair Crowley's deck, you know, they're kind of trying to be weird. They're throwing all the Kabbalah stuff in there and everything, <laughs> right? But there's something about the Marseille that I love because it just seems like kind of folk art. Like it just yeah. seems like it is what it is. But in this one, there are, these drops that seem to be moving from that communion of the innocence up to the sun. So the sun is, the sun's rays are cascading down. And at the same time, there's this watery nourishment up to the sun, which, I mean, that's the whole thing, isn't it? That spirit of reciprocity. Uh, we are not alone in the cosmos. Um, yeah, together, better together, and all that. All one under the sun. All one under the sun. Well, you know, I had other questions, but man, we that's just it. Like, we got to end it there. It's beautiful. Brian, thank you so much. Really appreciate talking to you, my friend. That was very, very cool. Nice one. Yeah, no, I've enjoyed speaking to you too. Now, before we go, people want to find out more about Julian Vane and your work. What's the best place? conveniently these days julianvane.com v-a-y-n-e.com um and there's like links from there to like loads of different stuff loads of books and you know i do like online teaching bits of mentoring for people and when the pandemic um you know inshallah passes uh then uh you know like face-to-face -face stuff uh talks workshops blah, blah 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 i've got a blog that i've run run for about uh oh man it's getting on for like a decade now so there's links out from there as well. But julianvane.com, easiest way to find the, find uh, find me and the stuff. And, you know, friendly and lovely people can uh, check me out on like Instagram, uh, old school, Facebook, or all of that kind of stuff. And Brian, yeah. thank you so much. Really lovely conversation, my friend. Very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, brother. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.